19, starting in verse 31, and then read into Luke 19. Feel free to follow along up there as I do so. Luke 18, verse 31. It's a bit of a strange place to start, but it's an important one. Verse 31, taking the twelve, that's his disciples, aside, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. And they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. And your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation's come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Good Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the opportunity to gather it again here on the uh, last lap of the school year. And we pray you be kind uh, to meet with us, to show us yourself and your goodness and your grace. Show us our need of you. Uh, Show us even more, Lord Jesus, how you meet that need. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, as of uh, this afternoon, we are in the midst of one of my favorite holidays of the year, March Madness. I hope all of you filled out your RUF bracket, and I hope all of them have been busted, hopelessly. And... uh, but I want to talk about a little bit different sort of basketball madness um, that uh, happened last night, actually. Uh, and almost none of you will be familiar with this, and if you are, let's talk later. Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, an NBA team, whom I hate, who are having a terrible season, which I love, uh, announced that two of their players, Luol Ding and Timothy Mozgov, would sit the final 15 games of the year. Why is that interesting? Well, they're not injured. There are two of their better players. They were just signed this offseason for a combined four years, $136 million. Why would you set two of your best players when your team is terrible and you own this much money? The stated reason is to give their young players more chances to play and to develop. And that's reasonable, except their young players are all terrible, actually. And uh, they really have almost no hope. 
the, the real reason, which is what every real NBA fan and analyst knows, is summed up in one recently coined word, it's pretty new, tanking. They're tanking. That is, they're losing on purpose in order to, uh, well, set themselves up well for the future, financially and draft picks. Um, if you're a fan, you really should hate this kind of thing, unless you hate the Lakers, in which case... I just hope they keep on tanking. Um, well, if you're reading through Luke eight, you may want to say like, "Well, so what? I don't care about I don't care about your brackets. I don't care about the Lakers." Here's the deal: if you're reading through Lake through Luke eighteen and <laughs> it wasn't that funny. If you're reading through Luke eighteen and nineteen, um, and you know what tanking was, you might think Jesus is tanking. It's really interesting. Consider this. If he's the team GM, general manager, and he's making personnel decisions, in these two chapters, this is what he does. First, against the disciples' disapproval, he adds a bunch of infants and toddlers to the team. Seriously. Uh, Jesus, we have better things to do. No, bring the kids in. They have no game. Okay, They can't walk, much less far off a nice jumper. Um, he then, immediately after this, turns away a prized five-star recruit. I mean, this guy has all-star potential. Seriously. Sterling. Rich young ruler. Intelligent. Forthright. Earnest. Jesus sends him away. He's not ready to be on the team. Then he immediately turns around, as you see in our account, and adds instead a blind beggar. No room for the five-star recruit, but got room for a blind beggar. And then, lastly, in our text tonight, recruits. I mean, wines and dines this five-star loser. This uh, shorty with a history of selfish behavior who's universally disliked. And he's worse than a baby. Like, babies will grow up and eventually develop a game. Uh, this guy just got nothing. What is he doing if you're reading through this account, what is he doing? What is Jesus trying to accomplish? Is he tanking? Is he trying to lose? Is his team only for losers? Um, or maybe this is just some kind of weird game and Jesus isn't taking this very seriously. Actually, what's going on is very important. Uh, what we're going to see tonight is that uh, this is actually what Jesus is all about. This is the nature of his mission. This is not a game for him. He's on a recovery mission. And because he's on a recovery mission, that's what the whole account is about, we, we need to be willing to accept his agenda, what he's all about, and then to find our place, admit our place. Where are we in regards to this mission? So we're going to ask three questions tonight, hopefully answer them. Who sees, who seeks, who saves? Pretty simple, pretty simple story, but pretty surprising. Who sees, who seeks, who saves? So our little story, we're going to start for the most part in Luke 19 with the story of Zacchaeus. We, we, this text, if you know it, there's a good chance you know it because you were brought up on it in Sunday school or VBS or something. It stuck out in your head because you got this short little dude and he can't see. And so he has to run ahead and climb up in a sycamore tree. And if you're a kid, uh, this is easily uh, identifiable to you because that's your life experience. You can't see. And it uh, hasn't been like that for me for a long time. For some of you, I know it's an experience now. For some of you, it's sorry. Um, you know, you're at a game or something. 
you can't see over the people in front of you. You're at a movie. This is actually one of the reasons I always sit in the back row. It's because I'm, I'm thoughtful, actually, and I don't want to block anyone's view. Uh, also, I don't want to be seen in general. But, um, but seriously, Zacchaeus has this problem. He's trying to see, and uh, he's willing to climb a tree to do so, which is fun as a kid, but sort of... Uh, sort of embarrassing behavior like a middle-aged man uh, of some respect well we see him trying to see but what else do we see um we see Zacchaeus perched in a sycamore tree when i ask us to see what we can see him taking the big picture all at once imagine you're in the crowd uh, i see Zacchaeus in a tree and that makes me want to ask him a bunch of other questions i don't see middle-aged men in trees very often uh, i want to see this guy on some other day actually and ask him a bunch of questions i want to ask Zacchaeus questions like Hey, Zacchaeus, when do you go to work in the mornings? Do you get up and go to work before everyone else so they won't throw things at you? Uh, do you have to homeschool your kids? Not, not because you have philosophical reasons for homeschooling them. No, do you have to homeschool them so they won't get beat up by the other kids? Uh, do your kids know why everyone hates you? Why everyone hates their dad? Uh, Zacchaeus, do you have any friends? Any real friends at all? If you don't understand why I'm asking those questions, you'll get to it later. Tax collectors were not very well liked. So we see Zacchaeus, this really uh, curious guy sitting in a tree, really un, not well liked. But we also see Jesus on his way. Our text tells us in chapter 18, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. He tells his disciples that's why he's going. They don't understand it. In other words, Jesus is traveling toward his death purposefully, and no one is with them. I mean, they're with him, but they don't get it. Imagine what that's like, knowing your end is near, it's going to be terrible, and no one understands. There just might be some heavy things on his mind as he travels. We also see this blind beggar yelling for mercy like a madman. And uh, we see this crowd in verse 3. Everyone is gathered into the streets as Jesus passes through Jericho. And what's remarkable with this crazy scene, if you put everything together, is... Uh, who sees and who's seen? Who does the seeing and who's seen? Jesus, surrounded by this crowd, with all these things on his mind, walks up to the sycamore tree, verse 5, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. It's amazing that Jesus sees Zacchaeus. But what he sees initially, just on the surface, is a hated man. Verse 2, Zacchaeus is described as a chief tax collector who was rich. I'm going to describe how this works real quickly. You see, he was rich before he was a tax collector. You had to be. To be a tax collector, you actually had to outbid all your competitors for the right to raise taxes. You actually paid that tax ahead of time to Rome. You outbid your competitors. And then if you won the right to tax, then you would go and make up what you gave away for the right to tax. And then... You taxed more on top to recoup your losses. Well, Zacchaeus is so good at this, he's actually the chief one. He and his underlings basically work for Rome to tax their own people, and they get all the extra gravy on top. Um, which is to say, he's hated. Um, there's a movie, I don't get to watch very many movies, so I feel like I reference the same five movies and just find like different illustrations from all of them. So this is a movie I saw a couple years ago called Stranger Than Fiction. It's a great movie. Um, and it's about a tax man, and he's sent to audit. Uh, his name is Harold Crick. He's sent to audit this little bakery run by this firecracker of a woman named Anna Pascal. 
And Anna Pascal has only paid 78% of her taxes last year. And as they talk about it, she's like, yeah, that's, I could only, I could only like reasonably, philosophically agree to 78% of what the government was doing. So I paid 78% of my taxes. And, uh, anyway, she, uh, being a bit of a firecracker, begins to curse him and yell at him and throw things around the shop. At which point, all, all of her clients jump up and start yelling, Tax man! Boo! Boo! Down with the tax man! They hate the tax man! Uh, one guy has a knife, like he's pointing at him. Um, and uh, Harold Crick, this IRS agent, is like, I understand. Like he says, I understand. Uh, he's used to being hated. None of us like the tax man, and if you don't yet you will later come to not like the tax man. Um, but this is completely different to a new degree. Like, she gets audited. That's inconvenient. No, the power of the Roman Empire is behind Zacchaeus. Uh, this this unjust, warlike... Well, that was peaceful, but if you didn't pay your taxes and you rebelled, they were going to come and crush you. They stood behind this as oppressors of these people. And, uh, yeah, if you were the kind of person that went out every day and worked hard in the field to provide for you and your family, which is what everyone did, and this guy who lives in the mansion on the hill took what was due to Rome and then more for himself year after year after year, you would probably hate him a lot because he's taking it from you and your family. So uh, Jesus, though, sees this hated man, but it also sees a human. Jesus calls him by name. We don't even know how Jesus knows him, but calls him by name and treats him with dignity. That's what, I'm, that's what I mean when I say Jesus sees a human. He doesn't just see his failure. He doesn't just see his sin. doesn't just see his corruption. He sees a person. He calls him by name. He treats him with dignity and respect because he's someone created in God's image. And Jesus treats him that way. And uh, we don't do that very often, and we don't do that very well. Actually, on a daily basis, we pass by all kinds of people and fail to acknowledge that they're even humans. Now, I know we live in Pittsburgh, and I know it's cold, and I know you feel like you're okay not even acknowledging your own friends and acquaintances when it's like this. So I'm not talking about that necessarily. But I am talking about how, when it's become clear to you that someone is a failure or a loser, or drunk, or slut. I'm not describing those words. Those are the words you put in your own head to describe someone. Whatever it is, once you ascribe their, that label of failure, you actually often cease to view them as a human. Right? You just sort of write them off. Um, or, you know, perhaps they're not that bad, but those people down the hall that you just sort of lived with every year that you didn't really get to know, they are perhaps there but you know maybe they're just a problem or a situation or someone you might use or perhaps you just fail to see them at all uh, yeah you've got your own agenda you've got things to do but i do want to make it personal who there's got to be someone who is it in your life that you're walking right past and not even seeing you've written them off they're regulars in your life, but you've written them off. They're not worthy of your time. Or they're beyond reach. Or you just can't stand them. Or you just don't want to know them. Or you're just too busy. Or maybe they're just too needy. 
And to give them time would be opening this flood of need, and they would suck you down, and they're a sucky need. And so you just ignore them. Who is it that you're just ignoring and walking right past, failing to even see them? Well, Jesus sees perfectly and treats Zacchaeus like a person created in God's image. And then it becomes clear that he's the one that seeks after as well. That Jesus doesn't just see Zacchaeus, but he cares about him. Now, it's, it's interesting and it's perhaps possible to think that Zacchaeus is a real seeker here. After all, he climbed up into a tree, so curious that he wants to see Jesus. But, uh, no, not really. The, the real seeker here, clearly, is Jesus. When you, when you put all the evidence together, it's really remarkable that Jesus would pursue this cat, this guy at all. It's highly unlikely. Uh, consider all these things. We just said this. Back in chapter 18, Jesus knows he's bound for Jerusalem, which is death. He knows he's going to die in a few weeks. I'll repeat that. In a few weeks, he knows he's going to die. If you know you're going to die in a few weeks, you really prioritize your time, right? That's what bucket lists are all about. And... Uh, we're supposed to be about. Anyway, uh, if it's your last week on earth, these last few weeks on earth, it's hard to imagine anyone wanting to prioritize a dinner with Zacchaeus. This guy's repulsive. Why in the world would you want to spend time with him? Uh, it's highly unlikely as well because of who Zacchaeus is. Again, uh, in our previous story, we didn't read this one, but the five-star recruit I talked about, the slam dunk All-American, the rich young ruler, the one who's super zealous, knows all these things, the one, well, he actually can't follow Jesus because he can't leave his wealth behind. And Jesus says in response, wow, so hard for the, for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples are flabbergasted. Um, yeah, that's, that was a a good example of someone they would want to join. He was a five-star recruit. This is a five-star loser. They both have the same problem. They love their wealth too much. And uh, that guy walked away. What chances there that Zacchaeus is actually going to follow or be responsive? And yet, Jesus makes it clear that Zacchaeus is a priority to him. Jesus says in verse 5, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. It's almost like Zacchaeus can't say no you know jesus invites himself into his house i have to stay in your house this word must is one that we don't i mean we we may talk about it like i have to do this when jesus in the gospel of luke says i must do something it's different than what we say when jesus says i must do something in the gospel of luke's it means divine necessity he only says it like five or six times but when he says things like i must go to jerusalem and die or I must stay at your house, he's actually saying, this is God's plan. This is God's desire. I know it's what I must do. And Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your home. It's a high priority for me. The disciples are thinking, this has got to be the worst time management ever. Uh, but Jesus says, this is God's plan for me. I have to do this. And so we have this strange hospitality that unfolds, where Jesus is inviting himself into someone's house. And uh, I would say if Jesus does it, you can do it. You should try it. Um, why? What's there to lose? And uh, it really becomes this weird thing of who's entertaining who, right? Uh, perhaps you don't have a lot of experience with hospitality, hosting people, but it's not normal for you to invite yourself into someone's house. It, uh, it seems like Jesus is the host, but Zacchaeus is the host. Who's in charge here? Um, 
We see the way that Zacchaeus responds in verse 6. It's really clear that Jesus is the host of this party. Zacchaeus is glad. He hurries down. He receives him joyfully. And it's easy for me to imagine, I could be wrong, but Zacchaeus, likely being a universally hated person, if he has any friends, it's probably his tax cronies. It's easy for me to imagine this guy hasn't had good company and laughter ringing off the walls of his house for a long, long time. That he hasn't had friendly faces and glad hearts around his dinner table in years. And uh, Jesus chooses to march into this loneliness, into this ugliness, and make himself at home. And he does so knowing that it's a very unpopular decision. Did you catch this? When Jesus invites himself in, the strange act of hospitality, immediately people start grumbling. There's hostility. Verse 7, they all saw it and they grumbled. It's easy to imagine them actually like standing right outside the window, like grumbling. Um, I don't know if they were doing that or not, but uh, it, they were doing it close enough that it became clear to Luke and others that they were whining, complaining, uh, grumblers outside. And what they say is true. He's gone in to be the guest of a, of a sinner. Well, it's true. Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty despicable guy. That's exactly what Jesus did. And in this way, they're just like other people in the stories that we've read. You may not have been here or remember, but in Luke 15, there's some people that are really complaining about the kind of people that Jesus hangs out with. So Jesus tells them a bunch of stories to show them what God's like. But I think if we think about what it's like to be them, we can maybe understand why they're complaining. Okay, remember, these people have been perpetually wronged by this guy. To be a tax collector at that time was to be unjust. They've been wronged year after year. And here Jesus comes into their town and chooses to hang out with him instead of them. To bless him instead of them. To care for him instead of them. Can you imagine being angry about that? I think it's pretty easy to imagine being angry about that. Uh, You know, Zacchaeus deserves to have his house egged and his mailbox beaten in. And instead, Jesus decides to have dinner with the guy. And uh, the anger here is not just at Zacchaeus. They're angry at Jesus. How could you fraternize with that guy and not us? And in this way, they actually have Jesus wrong. They don't understand him. Uh, They don't understand his mission. They don't understand his priorities. They don't understand his heart. They, these people that are grumbling, expect Jesus to act like they act to love what they love, to value what they value, to hang out with the kind of folks that they hang out with, to be the kind of folks that they are. And uh, Jesus is his own guy with his own mission, and he's pursuing the people he wants to. And that makes it completely possible that we have Jesus wrong too. That if we were in the story, we might be outside the house complaining that Jesus is not doing what we wanted him to. So, a couple questions here. Do you recognize Jesus' mission? What it is? That he has his own agenda. That you can't control it. And his agenda isn't necessarily yours. That it's to seek the lost. And they may be people that you despise. People you look down on. People that you think are losers. And he highly prioritizes them and pursues them. And he may pursue them even more than he pursues your A++. Or blessing your relationship that's so important to you. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but his agenda is his agenda, and it's not yours. 
Uh, secondly, I want to tie something else into this. The, 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 the groaners outside the house. Uh, I love the church, and by the church I mean God's church, but we have a, a, a way of standing outside the door and complaining about people that makes it the case that all kinds of people in the world and all kinds of people on our campus think the church and therefore think Jesus hates them. The church and Christians often complain about people in such a way as to give the impression that God could not care about them. Because we fail to love them and we give the impression that Jesus couldn't possibly care about them. Do you recognize that's true? You've, have you heard that? You've heard that, right? Well, then I'll ask this last one too. Who in your life, who in your family, who in your dorm, who in your house, who in your class do you never ever cut any slack? These people are disgusted and angry that Jesus would be so kind and gracious as to spend five minutes with this dude in his house. Who's the person that you can't cut any slack or any grace? Even though you've cut yourself a lifetime of grace, you can't give this person any slack. You've already written them off. Everything they do pisses you off. And uh, they're irredeemable in your mind. You just can't wait for them to graduate and move on or get out of this dorm or get out of your house. Who is it that listening to you and the way you respond to them or interact with them, who would conclude from the way you treat them, I'm not sure that RUF or the church or even Jesus is for me. Well, we've seen in our text that Jesus sees the lost and he seeks them. Let's talk about who saves real quick. So, it's possible you could read this text in such a way that you think Zacchaeus saves himself. Jesus shows up on the scene, and Zacchaeus is blown away, socks are blown off, and he says, Behold, Lord, half my goods I'll give to the poor. If I defraud anyone, and I'll restore it four times. This is actually really gracious. It goes beyond the extent of the law and his desire to uh, provide restitution. And so you could read the text that way and then say, Okay, in verse 9 then, Jesus, having seen Zacchaeus has pledged to be a much better boy, says, Good for you, Zacchaeus. You've done the work you need to do. Salvation's come to your house. It's easy to read this text as Zacchaeus got his act together and made a pledge to be a better boy, and now everything's good. He's, he's saved. It's great. And uh, that's completely wrong. Nope, nope. Wrong. No. And uh, lots of reasons why. One, this has only happened at all because Jesus first sought him out. Jesus has been gracious to pursue this guy and to come into his house, to invade his life. Two, all that he's done cannot be paid for by this restitution. Perhaps he's making a very generous offer to repay because the harm he's done is so pervasive and extensive in scope and depth that he can only begin to make a wild guess about how much harm he's done. Can't repay that. But third, there's a matter of not just what he's done, but who he is. We already read this thing and talked about the uh, Jesus saying uh, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I almost preached on that instead because, friends, that's us. It really is. I'm a college student. I eat ramen noodles. Uh, I, I get that. You're extremely wealthy by every standard of the world, historically and at the moment. Um, and because of that, we're very, very, very 
very protective of our independence and autonomy. We want control, and we think we can we can have it. Um, so perhaps the most popular symbol in America besides Nike, just do it, you can do whatever you want, you really can, we think, is Apple symbol. The little bitten apple. That's, that's the best symbol of autonomy that the Bible ever gives us. It's, it's pointed out to me in a book recently. Uh, the forbidden fruit, the desire to be like God, to be in complete control of our lives. And our wealth enables us to do that like no one else ever. And Jesus says about that rich man and this rich man and these rich people, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. I've given this some thought. Because I'm morbid. And I know what needles and camels are like. It can't happen. You could, like, pound it. It's not going to get through there. You could puree it. I don't think that's going to happen either. It's just... Well, is that... Yeah, I, I can't really figure out how you're going to get it to happen. Jesus is making the point. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible. The good news here is uh, there's one who saves. It's not Zacchaeus saving himself. It's Jesus. And in verse 9 and 10, he does this weird thing. He uses a self-referential title. You see this in verse 10? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's weird, right? You, you talk, he's talking about himself like in a third-person kind of title. Who does that? Like, I'll announce myself to be the campus pastor, but I don't say... The campus pastor will not read the text. Uh, the campus pastor thinks this is a great movie. The campus pastor hates the Lakers. Um, now Jesus is doing this because the title highlights a couple of things. It's, it's his role and his responsibility. And he, he describes what those are here. It's the, it's the role and responsibility of the Son of Man. That's the, Jesus, the title he's taking to himself. To seek the loss, which he's doing. He's pursuing this guy. And to save them. To save the lost. The problem is, no one in the world wants to claim to be lost. No one in the world likes to admit they're lost. I mean, I hate to admit I'm lost. Like, in any way. Physically, metaphorically, or any other way. I'm in control of where I'm going. Uh, And we hate to admit we're lost and need help. So, uh, I found this story from a couple years ago really, really fascinating. This is really interesting. Uh, it's a pretty long story, but it's a great one. So there was this couple from Dallas, and uh, he had a business trip in California and asked this new girlfriend if she'd be willing to like spend a weekend with them there for this conference. And uh, they had an afternoon off, and then this afternoon they took a day trip on a like an incline, only it was a incline up to ten thousand feet, uh, a little bit more impressive than our incline. Uh, sorry, Yenzers, um, where they were going to like hit the bar and just head back down the mountain. This was supposed to be like a two-hour afternoon excursion. And uh, so they weren't very well prepared. This was only their fifth date. They, they were wearing tennis shoes and tank tops and a windbreaker. And uh, there were like 40 people in this tram. They were just running up the mountain for an afternoon. There was a bar up there. They'd come back down. Well, uh, through a little foolish adventuresomeness and a desire to chase a waterfall they heard, they ended up getting a little bit lost. And then a little bit more lost. And then it became clear to them as the sun set that they were going to spend the night in the cold mountain. And they went to bed, <laughs> sleeping behind a rock, freezing at 10,000 feet, thinking, surely someone will come and get us. Our friends or our business people will remember that we're, we didn't show up and they'll, they'll come and get us. 
Well, they wake up the next morning and realize uh, they can't get back up the mountain. And halfway through the day, they realize no one's coming to get us. They'd be here by now. No one's coming to get us. Uh, in fact, I'm supposed to be at this conference. All my people in Dallas will think I'm at this conference. And uh, so they start heading down into the valley. This is their fifth date. Don't, don't go on a, an, an adventurous tram ride on your fifth date. Don't do it. Um, they end up spending a second night freezing in the California mountains, cold and hungry. On day three, they discovered a tent. It was awesome. They discovered, that means there's life, right? Uh, but the tent's empty. And they found a backpack. And the backpack is full of detailed maps of the entire area. And a journal and some supplies. They're excited. Until they start reading the journal. The journal belonged to an experienced survivalist who had made careful notes on all the maps. Uh, the, the journal was last dated one year ago. And it ended with the phrase somewhere along the lines of, there's no way out. So they didn't really understand how can there not be a way out until they did a little bit more exploring and realized they couldn't go back up. It was completely impossible. And they were trapped on the way down by a 100-foot waterfall followed by a 300-foot cliff. They were trapped. No way out. They spent a third night in the cold, freezing. Hadn't eaten in 72 hours. On the morning of the fourth day, the man realizes, we have matches. I'm going to light the forest on fire. That's actually good. That's a good idea, right? He realized, we're so lost, no one's coming to find us, we're going to starve or freeze to death very soon. I'm going to light a fire and burn this whole forest down if necessary, but someone is going to come and respond to this fire. That is knowing, friends, that you are hopelessly lost. When you're willing to light a fire all around you that may kill you, That's admitting you're lost. And they knew they were lost. Can you admit that on your own, spiritually speaking, you're lost? Spiritually speaking, that you're lost. I know it's possible for some of you to think, but I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing well at school. I'm doing well with friends. And frankly, look, I really like RUF and I like the church, but whenever I go there, it seems like, yeah, everyone's nice, but man, just a bunch, I feel like everyone's a loser. And, you know, I mean, I'm doing well. I'm winning. And if things go bad for me, and I'm in need, I can come back. I can come back then, when I really need it. Let me challenge that way of thinking. What if you actually are currently lost and getting more lost every second? This is from their account. Early on, it was easier when we came to a tree or a boulder to turn right down the mountain rather than climb up. And so by small steps, we became lost. A little slight turn off course, followed by another and another. If you're lost, it's the easiest thing in the world to keep getting further and further away from where you want to go. More and more lost. And if that's where you are, by small, imperceptible decisions, you're marching further and further away from Jesus and we call that loss, that means actually that those people you think are losers, they're actually ahead of you. It means they're ahead of you. They've already figured out they're lost. You haven't figured it out yet. They've already thrown up the flag. They've already burned down the forest. They've already realized 
I need someone to come and get me. Listen, this is not me calling you names. This is me admitting what the Bible says is true of the human heart. We're all prone to wander. We're all prone to run away from the Lord. We're all prone to seek our own joy and life, and it almost always carries us in ways into places it shouldn't. The good news is the Son of Man, Jesus, seeks those people out and has come to save them, come to rescue them. And He does it, this is the last thing, He does it in the most costly way. Verse 31, chapter 18, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He'll be delivered over, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed. The pictures here could not be more different. The picture here is of us thinking we know exactly what we're doing and where we're going and thinking we're winning, making small, imperceptible decisions that carry us further and further away into lostness and thinking we're winning. Jesus, on the other hand, knows exactly where he's going and it looks like the ultimate losing. And he runs headlong into it because he knows that's the only way to save us. That he willingly gives himself up to bring back his lost sons and daughters. We think we're winning when we're actually losing and getting more and more lost. And for the life of us, it looks like what Jesus does is the biggest failure in the world. And it's what's necessary to save everyone. To win us all home. This is the way back. And this great news. This is all grace. It's undeserved. This is what Jesus offers us all. So a couple questions here. Then we'll be done. If... You believe this. You're a Christian. This is what you believe. This is what you've grown up believing. This is what you want to believe. That's great. Do you have the kind of gratitude? The kind of gratitude that Zacchaeus has? Seriously. like <laughs> Wake up in the morning. Joy of the Lord. Not every morning, because I'm not like that either. But uh, seriously, like I don't deserve for you to be here and to be this kind and loving to me. This is a wonderful... And to want to give generously as a response to what God's done. That there is joy in your life because of what God's done. And you want to give to others. You want to join the mission. You want to be a part of it because of what Jesus has done to seek you out and bring you home. Or is your life filled with grumbling? Are you the people outside the house complaining about other people? If that's you, there's something wrong. You need to remember what Jesus has done for you. Conversely, if this is not your story, if you're not sure what you think about Christianity or Jesus, I want to invite you to take a look at this. The story here is really important. It's not not your fault more than anyone else's, but all of us are prone to get lost in the forest and to seek our own way. We live in a culture that tells us to do it our own way. And uh, man, it feels good and it feels like winning. But in the end... Everyone loses everything. That's the story. The American dream is actually you get a bunch of stuff, but in the end, you lose it all. You lose your whole family, and you die, and you lose all your goods, too. So there you go. That's the American dream for you. A little cynical, perhaps, but yes. Um, you don't get to keep any of your winnings. You lose them all. Jesus comes to bring you this joy and life, and he gives it to you for free. And he's uh, perhaps... Uh, Perhaps you're, proverbially speaking, sitting in the sycamore tree today, watching. Well, know. Know that he seeks people like you and gives his life for people like you to bring you home. All right, let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for this reminder of what you're all about and uh, and what we're often like. I know, Lord, it is 